Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with authors, artists, activists, theologians, philosophers, political pundits, scholars, and a host of others about their work and the lens through which they experience life. I engage my guests in a free-flowing conversation that's entertaining, unexpected, occasionally bizarre, and hopefully enlightening above all. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. Five million 18 to 34-year-olds took up gardening in 2016, and 37% of all millennials own plants. The houseplant trend is poised to explode on an international scale, becoming less of a trend and more of a global movement. According to the New York Times, the original plantfluencer behind this sudden outburst of enthusiasm is my guest, Summer Rain Oaks, an environmental scientist, entrepreneur, and author of a brand new book, How to Make a Plant Love You, Cultivate Green Space in Your Home and Heart. This isn't your run-of-the-mill interior design guide about hanging ivy on your windowsills. It's about the real reason we find ourselves gravitating toward plants. Summer rain ties together all the known benefits of taking care of plants, lower blood pressure, lower stress, cleaner air, with a bigger, less obvious benefit. Taking care of plants makes you a more life-giving person. The trick is to cultivate a relationship with them as intentionally as you would with another person. It's a great book and we had a great conversation about it. I give you Summer Rain Oaks. Summer, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's it's great. You know, it's interesting. I I usually don't start conversations out this way, but I I I got this book in the mail as happens often during the week, and I opened it up and I thought, I mean, the the cover, I was like, this is interesting. I don't know. I'm not sure. And somebody from the publishing house emailed me, and and I think I I thought, okay, I I looked at some links that were to stuff you'd done. And I started looking at your apartment and I thought I'm sold. And then I, I said, I'd love to do this. And I read the book and I, it's so interesting because the title is how to make a plant love you, which is one of the concluding chapters. But I feel like it's so interestingly named because it's almost got a how to kind of feel to it. And I feel like it, the book is more an invitation to see plants as a kind of way to reimagine who and where you are. Is that like a fair assessment of what the book really is about? Yeah, I think you really encapsulate it in a nutshell. And, you know, I think with the the title, you know, how to make a plant love you, and then the subtitle, cultivate green space in your home and heart, you know, really it's the the end heart part that I think really sets you up for the volley of what's about to happen in the book. And, um, and I do think that a lot of folks would come in thinking that this is a bit more of a how-to guide. I mean, especially if they're familiar with, you know, some of the content that I put out on YouTube or my houseplant masterclass, it's like very educational, very hands-on, very how to do this so that it empowers people to, um, grow plants better. And, you know, this book is a little bit more of like a philosophical, philosophical or like spiritual journey into how we can make a plant love us, but actually by finding our place in the world and in our community beyond the four walls that we have, you know, in our homes. Yeah. At one point, I I love this. There's a point where you're talking about Berkeley, the British idealist, the Anglican British idealist. Did you start going into Berkeley and idealism and does the material world exist? Did you get into if a tree falls and no one hears it, did it, or there sees it fall, and you get into this whole metaphysical 
conception of what a tree is and when does it become, I mean, it's a fascinating. I just think as an, as a piece of sort of thinking out loud, it, it I mean, there's many things I, I, I think are, are commendable and great about the book, but that's some of my favorite stuff is just you thinking out loud in ways that are deep and not at all pedantic. I mean, they're, they're, they're not, you know, it, 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 they're, it's deep and profound and yet has an earthiness to it. And it's just, you, you do a really good job of thinking out loud and inviting people to think with you, which is, I think, a real gift for a writer. Oh, I thank you. I mean, I think that some of the wonderful things about writing, I mean, writing for me is a very cathartic experience. And what I really love writing about is my own experiences, you know, but it, without it being an autobiography, because it's not that. But I think that when you write a book like this, so many of your past experiences really come to the fore. And I really value the idea of kind of like thinking out loud a little bit or, you know, curating your your thoughts and writing them down, largely because we live in a day and age. And I think you can appreciate this because you podcast and, you know, we live in a day and age where we're putting out content all the time. And sometimes it has less thought than we would like. And writing for me gives me a way to deepen that level of thought and engagement, um, especially with the the people, again, who are who may or may not be familiar with my work. And I've always worked in the space of sustainability and environment. And I made a decision kind of early on in my life to really connect with people who don't always look or act or think like me. You know, it's um, it's always important to be able to meet people where they're at. And so that's why when I'm, you know, introducing some of these concepts, some of them may be a little bit more deep and profound, but some of them may seem so very simple. And I'll give you a great example of that. You know, one of my favorite parts of the uh, of the book is really just teaching people how to observe. Because if I asked, you know, you or maybe anyone else out there to observe a specific plant, you know, we might be quick to say, oh, well, it's green and kind of pass on and, and not really think through the ability to be able to describe that plant in great detail. Yeah. You actually have a set a part in the book where you say that eight out of 10 or no, that most biology students and even teachers, professors can't name, uh, what it was eight of 10. Yeah. Can't, can't, can't identify common plants. Can't identify plant. common mm-hmm. like wild plants. Mm-hmm. And you say like the ones they ask people to identify eight of, this is it, eight out of 10 of the ones they, they, they did for, for, the surveyor or whatever, or the analysis were found in Shakespeare. Like he just, you know, Shakespeare is not a biologist or a botanist, but he just, he knows the names of these plants and is comfortable enough with them to put them in place. Yeah. And actually, um, so that was a, you know, research report that was done, I believe by a gentleman by the name of Will Dugan, if I, if I'm remembering correctly. And uh, he was looking at um, a study in the, the UK where, you know, during Shakespeare's time, Anybody could identify those plants. They're very common plants. They're very common plants today. You could find them in, you know, garden centers or in gardens or along the roadside. But kids and teachers alike were not able to identify those. And I think that we've seen like a lot of stats out there where kids can identify hundreds of different types of corporate logos, but they can't identify something that's maybe native in their backyard. And I think that is a real testament to the lack of time that we're actually spending 
outdoors. And I was the type of kid who, and I write about this in the book, like you couldn't get me in from the outside. Like I would be taking the outside in with me. And, you know, you just don't experience that anymore. There was a stat out there recently that was shared with me by kidsgardening.org, which has been around since the 1980s. And, you know, part of the their studies showcase that um, children actually spend less time, you know, outdoors than um, inmates. So, you know, you begin to start to, and that's like a really kind of stark statement because you begin to realize that if you're not interacting, you know, with the environment and you're not interacting, you forget how to observe it. You forget to draw stories, even if your stories are wrong, you know, and this is kind of like science 101 or um, natural history 101. I mean, we don't have plant tags out there when we walk in, you know, maybe at a botanical garden, but maybe not on a hiking trail. And you have to intuit, you have to observe and intuit, well, why is that plant growing that way? Well, you know, why are the cherry blossoms blooming and, and not, and why does it matter? Or, you know, why is the poison ivy growing here and not over there? Um, and you, you have to draw these stories in your mind as to why that is. And you become, you form hypotheses and along those, um, everything along those lines. And that's kind of what I was, you know, I was trained to do as an ecologist, but I realized that we've kind of forgotten to do that. And now yeah, you, you've been talking about a condition that clinically has been diagnosed and identified called biophobia that that kids who are spend so much time developmentally disconnected from nature. Actually, it's not that they don't understand it or are or, or, or unable to sort of tell a story about integrate. They're actually afraid of it. Yeah, they're actually fearful of going outdoors. And I think it's probably equivalent to us like if we didn't grow up near the forest and all of a sudden we wanted to walk in the forest at night. We may be a little creeped out, right? But um, this is to a different kind of extent where people are even afraid to put their hands in the dirt. Um, you know, I studied aquatic entomology as well in university and that's where insects, you know, insects live in water. Some of their life stages are actually in water. Some insects live their entire life stage underwater. And we think about clean water it's important for us to have like a healthy ecosystem and have a lot of insects in our water and lots of diversity of insects. But when people start thinking about it and they're like, Ooh, insects in our water, it kind of feels a little dirty, but it's partially because we might not understand, you know, that concept. And so that, that might be what we're kind of seeing is that children who are not exposed to it, they're fearful of like what it could be when putting their hands in the dirt. Maybe their parents have even said, well, wash your hands. You know, we have this kind of giant fear of, you know, disease agents and just being dirty and all this other kind of stuff. So we live in a very over sanitized world. And I think that now we're just starting to find, you know, research that it's important to have bacteria and there's both healthy and unhealthy bacteria, but it's important for us to have bacteria on our skins, in our gut biomes, um, in our food systems and, you know, in order to be able to build up our immune system, to keep our skin healthy, uh, to keep our soil healthy, to keep our whole ecosystem healthy. So it's all connected for me, you know, being an ecologist, you see, you're a systems thinker. So you see all this, you know, very much connected. And I try to really connect those dots and how to make a plant love you. You tell a story in the book that I, I found charming and in some sense, like, tragic and I, I like it, because I'm thinking about your life and what it's like and you you are you see somebody coming out of the local plant shop in your neighborhood in Brooklyn and you say to this guy that's a beautiful maranta and he's like what'd you call it a maranta and you explain I I and I just found it so beautiful I wanted a maranta after this you talk about <laughs> this 
he he's like, I don't know what it was. I just bought it because like the look of it. And you explained to him that it likes some bright light, but not direct sun. Prefers a humid environment, and that you'll see its leaves fold up during the evening hours, as if in prayer, which is how it got its name. And I'm like, God, what a beautiful and economic description. I mean, the economy of language is it was great, and I thought, wow. And by the time you you he you finished the sentence. His shoulders were already halfway turned in the other direction. He exchanged a cursory thank you and was on his way uh, with his Maranta. And, you know, I thought, gosh, how many times a day or how many times a week do you offer a kind of gracious? You seem like a char- relatively charming person. I don't know you very well, but you you're, you seem that way in writing and just in interacting with you and seeing you on YouTube and stuff. How often are your charms just rebuffed? I mean, people just looking at you like, hey, get out of my space. Like, what are you telling? It's a house plant. Like, you're crowd. Like, I mean... Do you do you do you get rebuffed regularly? <laughs> um, I think not not so much any longer. I mean, I think that there's ov- always you have your critics and the things along those lines. Um, and uh, and I think that you know I've I've had mostly people come up to me and say, "Oh, I really like love your YouTube channel," or "You're the person who really brought me into loving plants." Um, and I think that is probably a testament to when you are very passionate about something and you share your passion uninhibitedly, <laughs> it just, uh, it just resonates and spills over into other people's lives. And I am just always so charmed when people come up to me and they say that, you know, my, my love for plants has really stoked their love. And I try to, and you probably get this through the book too. Like I really try to, have this benefit the community because, um, you know, just the other day, I just started a community page for plant swaps and plant swaps are basically, you know, people come together from the community and they swap plants. They could be potted or bare root. And I had, you know, uh, plant swaps are not new, but, um, I think because of the way that I have packaged mine and publicized it and created like a 10 step guide to doing plant swaps, um, you know, people, it really resonated with people. And now you see this proliferation of plant swaps all over the world. And so I just did this one little simple step of, you know, creating on my, my blog at homesteadbrooklyn.com slash plant swap, a place where people could learn about a plant swap, put their own plant swap on a community calendar and find ones in their neighborhood on, on the calendar. And somebody wrote in the other day and just said, I, I had this small plant swap that I had at the local library I asked around from how people found out about the plant swap. And this is somebody in California and I live in New York. And she said four people, and it was a very small plant swap actually found out through your community page. And, and that was really wonderful. And she's like, you know, I just want to say like, thank you so much for, you know, giving this as part of the community. And, you know, that really is for me, the ethos of the book. And I might've like gone off topic here, but the ethos for me in the book is like, you create the community that you want to live in. It's not just about, you know, creating a wonderful space and an oasis of green in your home, but it's about actually being out and being active. And you could actually find that through something as humble as a houseplant. Yeah. You have a chapter that, you know, do you want a lifestyle or a life and, and, mm-hmm. and, and seeing this as part of a way of life that, yeah. So what you're saying is, is that for every Miranda dismissal, now that your YouTube page and stuff is is more prominent that you get more heartwarming <laughs> interactions. Yeah, so, yeah I, get, I get more heartwarming interactions. And I think that, you know, there is this kind of bifurcation. Um, you know, I, I recently have gotten a couple people that have like seemed to have some backlash. You always get like the thumbs down and you're like, come on, that was about like 
kids in an inner city urban area getting a grant to build a garden and you're really going to give it a thumbs down. <laughs> like, you yeah, know what yeah, I mean? Like yeah. somebody. <laughs> but, um, but, uh, I think that, um, you know, you know, I, I don't have perfect plants, you know, I, I, I grow plants in, um, Brooklyn, New York. I have a little over a thousand plants in my home and I only have so much. That's, that's one zero 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 for people not listening. This is over a thousand plants and, and this is a one bedroom, right? In Brooklyn. Uh, yeah, it's a one bedroom. It's a one bigger bedroom. one bedroom, but because I've I've lived here for a while, but um, but yeah, it's hard to find a space like this now. You, but you yeah. say that like one bedroom expand. Well, you know, it was smaller <laughs> when I moved in, but I've lived here a while, and just like plants, they grow. <laughs> it's a larger one bedroom. Well, it feels smaller now that I have all these um, plants in here, but um, but yeah, no. So I think that you know, I think the 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 challenges, and I think you might have um, uh, talked about this in one of your your earlier podcasts, but um. You know, I I really value the education that I have, and and I, as I mentioned early, I recognized very early on that if we can't communicate the things that we're really passionate about, so if we can't bridge that kind of world of science to kind of like armchair excitement for the environment, then we're not going to be really doing a good job and being able to change people's mindsets. And so I think that you know, recently I had. Um, one of the the botanists at um, Leiden University reached out to me and was like very caustic, um, and I think that you know part of it may come from you know the sharing of plants maybe in partially imperfect states, um, and I'm very open with that. I'm like I I'm doing this uh, this exercise right now called 365 Days of Plants, where I highlight one different plant a day to really highlight it and just focus on how I'm growing it you know, what I've learned from it, any type of pest pressures. So you could do, you could spend almost three years and like, <laughs> and just spend a time with a different plan every day in your apartment. It would, yeah, it would be almost like two years because I have about 560 different types of species and then a number of different types of varieties and cultivars, but like a total of a thousand plants. So I have some repeats, but, um, and I like to grow some repeats because sometimes I will like subject a plant to a different aspect or a different window because a lot of times people aren't growing the types of plants that I have indoors um, or they might be growing them in a different environment. And like what I say doesn't necessarily go. It's not gospel. But, you know, I, I want to be able to document the way that I'm growing and learn from it. And I think that's um, it's valid. I mean, it's not like science, but it's like observation. And I think that's important. And, um, you know, as I share in the book, you can't become a good gardener unless you actually start to garden and you start to learn. And there is a lack of information of growing plants in an indoor environment versus like in a botanical garden or in, um, you know, any type of like professional horticultural setting. So I think that, you know, turning people onto that and becoming like citizen gardeners, whether it's indoors or out, I think is a, a very positive step in the right direction. And, um, and I want to be able to communicate. That sounds that. like a great movie, like citizen Kane, citizen gardener, <laughs> citizen know, some, gardeners. And then we have a lot summer, there. Summer Rain Oakley's life story, citizen gardener. And you yeah. can still end it with Rosebud. I mean, you could. Yeah, yeah. exactly. I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it 
because of the conversations you find here. If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month? Or more, it's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going. And you can help launch several other podcast projects I've got in the works. So I invite you to be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David Babico, Ken Skillman, Ellis Brazil, David Zoll, Sari Graham, Peter Steigerwald, Jennifer Spate, Ben DeHart, Joel Wentz, Jordan DeMice, Samantha Conower, Simone Garabedian, David Norling, Charlotte Donlin, Larry Rule, Stephen Lipless, John Schneider, Ben Crosby, Liam O'Brien, Jim Cress, Stephen Rowe, Jordan Morseberger, Josh Redder, Jody Stevenson, Andrew Stravitz, Glenn Stalsner, Greg Johnson, and Kai Wintenig. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening. And now back to the show. You're a millennial and you live in a one bedroom. I'm assuming it sounds like you live alone, like from your YouTube channel, things like that. So as I'm doing some research on you, I'm thinking this, you completely don't have to answer, you know, but this is what I'm thinking. I'm thinking, does she have some kind of romantic partner? Is she, does she date? And if you're dating, like, do you, I mean, the first part, time someone comes to your place or they, what if they're, what if they're a biophobe? I mean, I, I just, I'm looking at, at your place, which is lovely uh, on your, you know, pictures that you share online and stuff. But I'm thinking, gosh, I mean, this is something like if you're online dating or something, this has got to go in the first sentence of your profile, right? You must like plants. I mean, like, I mean, I, I just think this is the kind of thing that somebody would, I mean, socially, you know, I mean, I mean, even friendship wise, right? Like, I mean, your friends must have to be at least plant open or plant curious <laughs> or something, right? Yeah, I think, um, I think that I have, I have to say I have some of the most marvelous people in my life. Um, but I think that's probably a characteristic of, um, of just how I like how I am and how I've approached life. Like one of the funny things I've always joked about and, but I think is really true. And, and your listeners might think it's strange, but I've actually never had alcohol or coffee in my life. And when you take out alcohol and coffee from your life, you take out yourself in certain situations. So, I don't go to bars. I don't go to like, if I go to coffee, coffee shops. Shop. Okay. I, I was going to say, if you're in Brooklyn and you don't go to bars and coffee shops, like what do you, I mean, gosh, but, wow, <laughs> that's fascinating. I mean, you know, gardens are, are great places, I guess. But yeah. So, I mean, I think that you begin to meet and develop relationships in a much more, um, I would say in-depth kind of way by the virtue of where you sometimes hang out. And again, you create the community, you create the relationships that you want to have in your life. And, um, and, you know, I think that I've, you know, developed some really amazing relationships, both friendships and beyond, you know, here in New York, which I did not expect, um, because, you know, I didn't grow up here and I'm no, not you really, grew up, you grew up in, in Pennsylvania, right? Yeah. Yeah. So it's like kind of next door, but like in a, obviously very Cent, right, central or Western, like North, where, where? Northeast, like 
you know, North, oh, like like yeah. like Scranton, Al- yeah, like North Allentown, of, yeah, north of Scranton and um, just south of Binghamton, so right on the New York border, more or less. Oh, that's yeah, that's interesting because you know I was thinking as I was reading your book that that one part of your life is so connected to your parents. You know, you talk about this beautiful story of they're always gardening it. And, you know, you talk about your own Sunday ritual of gardening and how, how it seems like a sacred, sort of like your day of worship kind of ritual day. But you talk about them and they're working in the garden as, as, as effort and yet effortless, like it didn't, wasn't drudgery. They really enjoyed it. And that's deeply a part of who you are. But you've also done, you've also taken part in what you describe in depth in your book, the urban migration. So much, many people live worldwide and especially in the United States in cities and it's increasing, especially millennials, you know, especially in New York, you want to reinvent yourself, you go to the city. And so it's interesting that, that, that generally, you know, the people that live, I mean, George Carville, the, the political theorist said Pennsylvania is like Philadelphia and Pittsburgh and Alabama in between as far as politics. So it's interesting because you, you get this love of nature and in the environment and ecological sensitivity from where you grew up. And yet uh, politically, it's often the people at a place like Brooklyn that are, that are the most vocal advocates of sort of defending the environment, even though they themselves are often alienated from it. They're kind of walking in shops like, all right, you know, prayer plant, whatever. Okay. You know, I just like, you know, that's interesting because there's some strange paradoxes and tensions and, and you and your life story have seemed to straddle them and, and dwell them. Yeah, I think that that's true. I mean, when I think about kind of a progressive mindset, you know, progressive mindsets could happen anywhere. But, you know, a number of people move to New York City and city uh, urban areas too, like, as you'd mentioned, and what I refer to in the book as like reinventing oneself, you know, you may be gay or lesbian or transgender and find, you know, more support for, uh, for your orientation in the New York versus maybe in a smaller town, um, you know, you can, you could be steampunk or you can be goth or you can be a nudist and, um, not be looked at as, you know, strange, you know, in a, in an urban setting in many cases, I'm not all cases, obviously I'm speaking from more of like, you know, New York city from where I live. And, um, and I think that there's something really beautiful about that. You know, even for me, looking professionally where I would go. I didn't expect that I would be in New York City for so long. Now, it doesn't mean that I don't want, you know, to reimmerse myself in kind of country life. And I do think that I'm kind of reaching, you know, more of a point where it would be nice to be able to get outside a little bit more, even outside of my community garden. I do think that's one one of the things that the plants remind me of is like, when girl, you need to get outside a little bit more and have more interaction with us. And I think that is really important, but you go through life stages and you go through, you know, what is actually important to you at that moment in time. And sometimes you have to really go outside yourself to rediscover and to remind yourself who you really are. And I wouldn't have traded up, you know, my experiences for anything. I mean, I think that, you know, I, you know, really loved, um, and, and have worked hard and have like, really thought outside the box in order to be able to do the things that I love and to really connect people back to the environment, which is like, you know, my North star, if you will. And, and, um, I think eventually I will find myself back in a much more natural habitat, if you will, but at least I will know if I leave New York city that I've left my community, hopefully a better place. Yeah. I think of like this sort of 
you know, the in Lord of the Rings, you know, I heard somebody say once the difference between an adventure and a quest is like an adventure is like the Hobbit there and back in, but a quest changes you. And when the Hobbits come back to the Shire, they're not the same Hobbits anymore. And it's interesting because, you know, going back to that sort of to more bucolic, you know, less developed thing, but you would go differently because now you've you've lived in the biggest city and the most cosmopolitan. And that's a beautiful integration. And, and one of the things that I like about your book is is a kind of invitation to see connectedness and open endedness. You see it in, in nature and, and to see that in ourselves, you know, and one of the things that's interesting is that that people in the city on one level have so many choices and yet so many people feel so disconnected and not in control of their own lives. You know, it's, it's these interesting tensions. And part of the beauty of, of I think, the book is it, it invites people as they become more. You have this great quote by Alan Watts, right? You didn't mm-hmm. come into this world. You came out of it like a wave from the ocean. You're not a stranger here. And part of your invitation, as I read, to, to sort of get connected to the natural world and to plants in a deeper way is also a, a subtle invitation to be more comfortable in your own skin. I mean, you even talk about the imperfection of plants and, and yeah. things like that, how, how these things are, are invitations to learn about the asymmetries and, and, and particularity of ourselves and, and not fight against them. Yeah, I think you're really intuitive to actually see the metaphor there. And the person who reads the book can get can read this at a very surface level um, and then and maybe go as deep as he or she would want to. But I think that, you know, there is a lot of similarities there and being able to assess ourselves and our, like have this kind of like health and wellness and mindfulness attitude that we learn through our plants. And it's not only through my own thoughts in the book, but I had asked a number of my community members who like follow me on Instagram or YouTube to actually contribute to the book themselves. And I had asked one simple question and that was how have plants positively affected your life? And not the ones that we kind of eat and imbibe in because that's, you know, for another book, but you know, really the ones that we surround ourselves with every day. And most of the people who follow me are indoor gardeners. Now they're not exclusively indoor gardeners. There's people who do both or there's people who are just outdoor gardeners. But the stories that were sent in, and I and I had collected probably a little over 300 stories from the community. And I would have included, you know, all of them if I, I could. Um, but, uh, you know, it was just a really wonderful moment of people who were opening up with their vulnerability and shared that. And I think that is going to be a place where people could really find themselves in this book as well through other people's words and stories. And what I really took away out of those stories is that people might be going through different situations, but really the outcome is the same. And they may not heal themselves, you know, completely in the sense of like healing their chronic pain or hearing, um, healing like, uh, a um, depression or anxiety, but they've learned to live with it and manage or ameliorate it through plants. And I think that is so beautiful because we're often sold, you know, everything from like popping pills to silver bullet solutions on like, get rid of this now or get rid of your belly fat or get this. And we're sold that. But what we don't actually realize is that we might have a situation or a condition that we're in and we have to go through it. 
And that's life. And that's part of the character building process. That's how we learn about ourselves. It's a very uncomfortable situation. But um, in many ways, people have shared stories about how plants have taught that about themselves. And I tried to capture and convey that um, through the book. And I think that's, you know, another beautiful facet to, to how to make a plant love you. Yeah, you know, it's interesting, as you were saying that, and, and, and that is part of the beauty of the book. There's all of these, you know, testimonies, vignettes to what plants have done, people that through divorces or chronic pain. And, and, and as you're saying that, you know, I was thinking, you know, Jack Kerouac um, wrote down this 30-point list of essentials for spontaneous prose. I think he, like Ginsburg, people ask him how he wrote The Subterranean in a few days or something. And he uh, wrote these, like, sort of, they're like tweet-level, you know, fragments. But, you know, one of the things he says, number two, is submissive to everything, opening, uh, listening. And then he has this other one that is is so great. Uh, he says... Um, tell the story of the world, uh, tell, telling the true story of the world in interior monologue. And the sense, the sense in which he's, he's trying to, you know, find a space of self-acceptance so that you can be connected to the world uh, and yourself. Also, he also says one of them, I think number, this is pretty high for him. Uh, where is it? It's number... Oh, number three, try, and emphasis try for him. Try never get drunk outside your own house. So, I mean, it's not a problem for you because you abstain from alcohol and coffee, but I mean, for many writers, maybe this is good advice, but, but this sort of attunement, and, and, and that's so much of your book is about attunement and, and, and how this, there's this interplay between nature and yourself and, 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 and again, the sort of eschewing perfectionism and seeing a kind of beauty in the whole. Uh, that to me, you communicate that very elegantly, uh, in ways that are again, inviting it's, it's interesting too, because I think there's this joke, how do you know, uh, how do you know CrossFitters, atheists, or how do you know someone is a CrossFitter, an atheist or uh, a vegan? Well, they tell you. <laughs> yeah, these are, but you know, so this is like, you know, somebody could expect this to be an ideological and kind of prescriptive book and it's much more descriptive than prescriptive it, mm -hmm. it describes a kind of life and the invitation is in the description not in a sort of prescription like you know you're horrible and ecologically terrible and you're part of a system that threw the planet and do this now or die i mean it's very i i found myself getting lost in your stories i mean there it's very the, the, the book has that that charming invitation to it yeah, and i think that's probably a little bit more of a testament to my you know personality and how you know, I've always wanted to approach this, you know, as I mentioned early on, you know, I started actually in the world of fashion, but through the lens of being an environmental scientist. And that well, that's was, what everybody does. I mean, I, everybody in the fashion world just comes right from environmental science. I hear that story all the time. Yeah, I, I was, uh, I was hoping when I started that like 15 years ago, that I'd see a little bit more people follow in my shoes. But I think that, um, that might be too much to ask. But I do think that, um, you know, from a lot of, you know, a lot of my girlfriends and guy friends as well, who are within the fashion world, th that has obviously expanded that concern for, you know, what we wear. And the reason why I bring this up is because, you know, we so focused on so many of the things that disconnect us, that differentiate us, that make us individuals, that we often forget the things that really connect us on a daily basis. Like, you know, what we put on our bodies, you know, what we wear, what we listen to, what we laugh at, you know, how we transport ourselves to work, you know, 
what we eat, these are the things that actually connect us as human beings and as individuals. And I was always, I always gravitated towards that because as much as I love individualism and being who you are and being comfortable in your own skin, I think it's also important to understand, you know, what connects us because that is what's going to get us through, you know, our own crap um, and also the things that are happening in the world. And, you know, there's this great quote and I'm going to butcher it, but it's of the nature of you don't get people out to sea by, you know, telling them that they have to build the ship and it's a lot of drudgery and it's a lot of work in order to be able to build that ship and you have to get your hammer and you have to get all your tools. No, you sell sell them on the beauty and the vastness of the ocean. And I think that's kind of where we get tripped up, especially with people who are probably sharing a little bit more of a, um, a doom and gloom environmental message, which I do think that it's important to go deep and to understand um, the severity of certain problems, because you'll never come up with a solution in order to be able to deal with that level of, of severity. But you don't inspire people through that. Um, and I think that this is probably where I bifurcate with the one of the botanists who I'd mentioned who had who has been kind of like my like arch enemy, if you will, or whatever. Um, and, and, you know, not necessarily always going so deep into the botanical tomes, because you don't want to lose your audience, you want you want to help them gain insight, and meet people where they're at. And also, you know, use a language and invite people in um, to your world by empowering them. And that's often by not like saying like, oh, look how good I am or look how many plants I have or like, woohoo, look at my curated Instagram board. It's it's more about, you know, holding out your hand and meeting people where they're at. So I think that, you know, those things are really important and it's more of a testament to, I think, how I, you know, approach the world, especially, you know, being passionate about nature and knowing that, you know, we are in a law of diminishing returns. Like, a lot of people uh, don't have not grown up the way that I have and didn't get to experience nature in the way that I had as a kid. And what did your parents do for a living? What were their backgrounds? I mean, why were they, was it connected? I know your great grandfather was a coal miner, but because yes. you talk about that yeah. but in the book, but what, what were their, what did they do and why, how did they, how did that, did it integrate with their passion for gardening or, or no? Um, how, how did that work? I think, I think my parents are both really practical people. My dad is a retired truck driver, believe it or not. Um, you know, and my mother, uh, actually was, uh, she taught my, my dance. She did tap ballet and jazz and she was my tap and, uh, uh, ballet instructor um, growing up, and now she does uh, paralegal work. But you know, my parents are really salt of the earth, you know, folks. And I think that, um, but in many ways, like they, they, you know, didn't have an education beyond high school education. So my brother and myself are the first to have gotten a college education. And you know, I think northeastern Pennsylvania, you really think of like you know, hardworking blue collar people, and that's that's my family. Um, and my dad and my mom, like I said, are really practical people. They're embarrassingly proud of like uh, of me and my brother and you know they're the type of generation that really believed on kind of working hard and maybe doing a work that you don't love in order to be able to facilitate the lives of of your kids and i appreciate that now probably more than i had as 
as a kid, because as you get older, you start to, again, reflect about these things. And I've grown much closer to my father over the years than I ever had, you know, as, um, as a kid, because I just didn't understand why he was like always gone, because he always worked like really hard shifts of, um, of driving truck. But I like really appreciate the fact that they are now looking back, even though my parents are like really simple folks, they're just very progressive. And I think that it's just practical. Like it was just practical to compost. It was practical to garden. Um, it was practical to live the way that we lived. I mean, and I think that that practicality, you know, just makes sense to me. Like in many ways, like living in the city and seeing the impracticality of things doesn't make sense anymore. In in some sense, it seems like you've put flesh and told a story of something before you had words for it. You just grew up this way, more integrated into uh, nature itself. And and as you're older now, it seems like maybe you're learning to tell the story of things you just sort of took for granted. I mean, that were just a part of you growing up. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, you know, yes and no, because I think that if anybody, you know, any of my high school friends would know that I was like definitely the most environmentally oriented and very active. I, I was like the most likely to succeed. And I was like super active all throughout my um, grade school and high school career and um, and was very engaged with the um, local county conservation district, you know, it was part of what I shared in my um, in my my book as well. That as a teenager, I had a really charmed position. I think, you know, uh, really spearheading a number of the environmental initiatives there in my town. And one of these was a coal mine. I mean, you t- you were tasked with repurposing or doing reclaiming, a sort of reclaiming, yeah, reclaiming a, coal a coal mine, mine. which for plant life, which your this is the one your great grandfather actually worked at, right? And and and. Yeah, he didn't work at this specific one, but he like within miles of where he works. I mean, if you look really underneath the the earth of northeastern Pennsylvania, I mean, it's a giant anthracite coal mine. And I think now, you know, we have my father lives in the county that is the most fracked county in the uh, at least on the eastern you know uh, coast of the United States, if not in the entire United States. And fracked fracking is like hydraulic fracturing, so that's like spring um, chemicals and water at high. And there, there's so much enthusiasm for this because it has made us. It's one of the contributing factors that has made us a net energy exporter, right? That, that, yeah, but that, that was the same. If you look at like the same thing for coal, um, and then we found out. Oh wait. <laughs> Like 20 years later, you're like, oh, wait, you know, this actually is spewing sulfur and creating, you know, acid, acid rain and destroying our waterways. And, you know, it's funny because being in this position, you just see things repeating and repeating itself. Um, And it's and it's there's no easy answer for it. But, you know, as a kid, you know, working up on, you know, and working on this, like reclaiming, reclaiming a coal mine was just such an education. And knowing that there is no easy answer. Like my, my great grandfather, as I mentioned, you know, was a coal miner miner, and he was on black lung and that's how he was able to really support his family. And, um, and you feel conflicted about that and you love your great grandfather, but you know, the, the choices weren't many, uh, you know, for, for him as well. And so, you know, you begin to look at this and you start to formulate in your mind and you're like, well, I'm not interested in retrofitting, you know, kind of an old economic system. I really want to be able to inspire a new one. And you see what you can do in your life with the passions and the energy and the talents that you have. And 
you know, a way I kind of feel like, you know, this has, um, this is how it's manifested, I think, in, in my life. You have this term, I, I came across the book, I never heard it, but I, I, I was surprised at how emotional it made me uh, because, you know, I'm probably one of your target people for this kind of book because I'm, you know, this is not, I'm not Mr. Sort of Green, uh, you know, I, I, it's funny because I'm doing these exercises you have in my book. I'm like, oh, wow, how many plants do I, and my wife is much more into, my wife does love to garden, we have plants, but uh, you talk about the POW plants. You know, they're prisoners of war. They're like the plants that aren't thriving. And I couldn't believe how sad I felt when I read that. <laughs> like people, the plants are just not, people just get plants and they're not at all sensitive to just what, what the plant wants or needs. And, and, and the, it's like failure to thrive syndrome. Mm, yeah. And I think that's, you know, part of the way of like how, you know, that's the, a part of the core of like how to make a plant love you is not by asking what plant will be good for your space, but asking what, um, like what plant will be good for you, but what, what space could be good for the plant that you're going to be bringing in. Um, and so it's like, it's really trying to put yourself in the plant's position and, um, and being able to observe it and, you know, to know that if you're not giving it the optimal conditions that it may still thrive, but it may actually warp and, you know, create a different kind of growth structure. And that may mean that you don't have to throw it away, that it'll just kind of grow the way that it's going to grow. And there's something that you can appreciate about that. And the the POW or the prison of prisoner of war plant was really brought up by a conversation that I had with one of my good friends who's a forager, Tama Matsuoka Wong, who have who's actually written a number of books herself. And she was always just, just such a terrible gardener. And um, and she but she grew up with her parents foraging. And um, she's half Chinese and half Japanese. And so she really has this like really wonderful Asian history of all these kinds of foods that we would think are would be weeds that she and her you know parents would forage and eat and so she said well why don't we just like pick the foods where they grow where they're good at and um and i think that's a really wonderful kind of metaphor um because when we start to bring homes uh plants into our homes we can't be more inside than outside and so part of that is like learning how to recreate the environment and doing that is by getting to know your plants much in the same way. And this is, you know, what I equate it to much in the same way that if you're going on your first date, you're kind of getting to know the person who you're sitting across to from the table. And um, if you're a good date, you're probably curious about that person. And, um, and, you know, perhaps we could do the same thing with our plants. Date your, your plant, <laughs> treat your plant to a nice date. Be a good partner. But yeah, you know, I, I, uh, I see this, bumper sticker now and again because my wife and i have two rescue pit bulls who have been great for us for me i mean and i see this you know i'll see this bumper sticker one time my dog rescued me kind of thing and, and thomas i thought of that as i was reading your book this sort of the way you invite people for plants to have this redemptive kind of rescue for because people we do feel so like, I, I always think about this I had a woman on last year who's an aristotle specialist i said you know the thing about aristotle we know way more about the natural world which he loved than Aristotle does, but he felt so much more at home in the world than we do. That we know all this about the world through scientific discovery and things, but we feel so alienated. And it's like you're, there's an invitation here in in your book for plants to do. The, there can be a rescue of the sort of alienated self through something as simple as plant. Yeah, and I think that some of the people that contribute to the book with their stories have 
do not mince words. Like they are very certain that the plants that they have brought into their life have healed them in some sort of way. And I think that we've lost that. Like if we look at number of the indigenous cultures who are here on the planet right now in real time, not necessarily indigenous cultures from the past, but ones that are living on this earth um, simultaneously as we are, you see this really deep symbolic connection to their gardens and to their plants. Um, it's built into their fork folklore. It's built into their cosmology. Even the way that gardens are sown, the types of plants that they're planting in their garden have some kind of deeper level of connection to their sense of being and their sense of selves. And I say, you know, why can't we have that? You know, why can't we have that with our houseplants? Why not tell ourselves, you know, those stories in some way, because that is how we actually build connection. The other way that we could build connection is really by rolling up our sleeves and getting out there and doing something. Um, you know, we could talk about it. I talk to a lot of people. I have a rescue chicken, like you have two rescue, rescue bull, bulldogs. And um, her name is Kippy. And I um, kind of like adopted seven others. I'm using adopted in quotation marks because I take care of seven others at the local senior citizen service center. And a number of those are rescues as well. Um, and uh, from school projects or like Easter hens or anything. That's what I mean by a rescue. And and um, a lot of people like look at me with the chicken in Brooklyn and with my plants and they're like, oh my God, you're like living the life. And I'm like, am I living the <laughs> life? Because like, we always need help at the chicken coop cleaning up poop. And like, we always need help at the garden, you know, but very few people will actually, you know, roll up their sleeves and actually incorporate that into their life. Um, and I think that is the differentiation that I place like in the book where he had mentioned earlier, like, do you want a life or a lifestyle? And I've been really proactive in my, you know, my own situation of here living in the city. You know, I have these wonderful relationships. I have this wonderful community around me. Um, I know a lot of the old timers in the community, as well as a lot of the new people who are moving in, because I really do put myself out there and I've like threaded myself into the tapestry of the community through the actions that I do on an everyday basis. And that is in part through, you know, the, the plants and being involved and active. And that's part of what I want to convey with this is like, you too can have this life, but in many cases, it doesn't come all, you know, with a curated Instagram board. It comes with the process and the journey, which is the wonderful part developing those rituals, developing that mindfulness, that is where the joy comes in, not with the perfect picture at the end. <laughs> well, that's part of the beauty that you describe. And I'll tell you, I, I love the book. Thanks for talking with me about it. And I am going to think, I think I'm going to go figure out where I can get Amaranta for my little yeah, studio here. Because yeah, I well, there's I think many different cultivars. Here. Yeah, and there's many different cultivars. And now that you could, you could handle it, um, and then you can watch it fold up at night. That's, I'm looking forward to it. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you liked what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you've found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. 
And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. Thanks to Summer Rain Oaks for coming on the podcast to check out her book, How to Make a Plant Love You. You won't regret it. And thanks again to you for listening to Give and Take. Until next time, friends, fare thee well.